Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Well, we're eight weeks into a series called The King's Speech, which is about the Sermon on the Mount, maybe Jesus' most famous teaching. And just so that we're all on the same page as we start, um, remember that this teaching, which is from Matthew 5, chapters 5 through 7, it happens kind of up on a mountainside with some of Jesus' uh, followers and friends. And it's kind of like one of the scholars suggests, it's sort of like he took his closest people to a, a resort in Banff for the weekend to teach them, right? They're kind of away on a retreat together. And what they're doing is they're preparing for this whole new way of life because he is ushering in a new kingdom. And it's a kingdom where you don't need visas or passports. You join it through repentance and through baptism and through committing your life to Jesus, who's the king. And so the sermon, which we're calling the King's Speech, this is Jesus' manifesto for his new kingdom citizens. He starts out with the Beatitudes. We talked about those mostly before Easter. That's all the statements, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, all of those ones. And those, if you remember, they're supposed to remind us about our identity as citizens of the new kingdom. Because it's not really that anyone wants to be poor in spirit exactly, is it? It's more that we come to acknowledge our poverty of spirit. And we come to embrace it because it draws us into deeper dependence on God. And no one can be completely righteous. But we learn how to hunger and thirst after righteousness, which again draws us closer to God. So the king's speech is telling us first about the kingdom, and then it tells us what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And now he's turning his attention to um, how we live out and live into our lives as citizens, how we live out our identity as kingdom citizens, particularly right now living towards God's law. You know, I don't know, I don't think about this very often, but the law was not exactly God's first intention for people having a law. That wasn't the first plan. When he created people, he made them to live in open and free relationship with himself. And they obeyed God joyfully. It's like, it's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Obedience being something that is unquestioned and joyful. But at creation, that's what it was like. The people trusted God, and they trusted him so much that they were utterly pleased to do whatever he said. But, you know, that got broken. Someone suggested that maybe God wasn't quite trustworthy, and maybe he was using them. And that tiny seed of suspicion has clouded 
every single person's relationship with God ever since. So for the rest of time, all the whole arc of salvation history, God has been working to win and woo people back into right relationship with himself. And people who love God have been fighting every day to lay down suspicion and trust that God is out for their good. And it can be a tough fight. The book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, um, tells the story of a time when God's people had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God acted in this very powerful way to bring them out of captivity and into a land of their own. But before they got to their land, they had to wander around in the desert for 40 years getting to know God. And Moses was the guy leading them during that time. And while they're in the desert, Moses went up a mountain and God gave him the Ten Commandments. Ten rules or principles that God wanted his people to live by. The Ten Commandments, that they are what we mean when we say God's law. There was a lot more stuff added to that over time, but at its core, God's law is a set of ten commandments that God gave his people to govern their life. And here's the thing about the law that I really want us to understand this morning. A law, by definition, can, is, it's, a, it's a boundary line. It can only ever be an outside edge that tells you what you cannot do. And so it serves a purpose, but it also has limitations. Um, I have a very sweet little girl who's living with me right now. A very sweet girl who occasionally gets incredibly frustrated with her little brother. And so sometimes there is hitting. And so I have a set of household rules, and I wrote them up nice and marker. They're very colorful, and there's stickers on them. And sometimes we read them out loud together so she can remember them. And one of the rules is no hitting. Well, just about every single day, at some point, she breaks that rule and hits her little brother. And so when that happens, I pick her up gently, and I set her on a timeout bench. And um, it's very close to me, so she's not alone anywhere. Don't worry about her. But um, I tell her... You are in timeout because you hit, and there is no hitting at Dana's house. And so through timeout, I can enforce a rule, you know? I can make her stop hitting, like, for at least a very few minutes. But what I can't ever do, I can't make her be patient. I can't make her be gentle or treat her brother kindly. And that, I mean, of course, that's what I'm really after. That's what I really want. No hitting is sort of a bare minimum. I really want kind and gentle and patient little people. But I will settle for no hitting. (laughs) Right? I want to suggest that God's law is similar. Thou shalt not kill or steal or commit adultery or covet or anything like that. They don't quite capture what God really wants. He can legislate no stealing. But what he's really after is generosity. Extravagant generosity. Like later on when he says, 
The sacrifice that he's really after is that we would look after orphans and widows in their distress. God wants his people to be generous because he is generous. They're made in his image. They should be like him. But he won't force them. So if the desire, generosity, is the center, the focus of what God is really after, then the law, thou shalt not steal, that's the outside edge. And this is important because when people start to become preoccupied with um, the literal definition, the details, and the letter of the law, we can start giving ourselves an awful lot of credit for doing the bare minimum. Right? For not hitting. How much credit do you get on a daily basis for just not hitting someone? So, I mean, maybe you should get more. I don't know. It depends what your life is like. So as we jump into today's text, remember that Jesus is up on a mountain. He's teaching his followers about the law, but he's not teaching them about the bare minimum. He's not nitpicking or clarifying what that outside edge really means. Well, can I take it if nobody's using it? Can I take it if I really, really need it? He's not He's not doing that. He's the king, and he wants the best for his citizens. So instead, he's teaching them to look for the center, for the image of God that's reflected there. He's asking them to start living toward the center in everything they do. Okay. Well, we're picking up our reading in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 um, and following. And the passage is about adultery and divorce. Yep. So I bet that's exactly what you were hoping to we'd be talking about at church today, isn't it? Oh, it's not a lot of laughing. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, what we're going to spend our time talking about mostly is the section that deals particularly with adultery. And I want to just say it's an uncomfortable topic and sometimes real tender. Right. I get that. Um, so we're going to do our best today to see what does it mean to live toward the center here? Let me read it for you. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Mm. I'm actually quite glad that Jesus included this in his Sermon on the Mount. Partly because the church... um, And Christians, we have a reputation, oddly, for being both um, hyper-restrictive and prudish about sexuality, don't we? And at the very same time, sort of hypocritical and sometimes prone to secretly engaging in the very behavior we publicly condemn. I'm not saying that's true of us necessarily. It's just that it's part of the perception that the wider world has when they look at us. But more than that, I'm glad that this is in here because it deals with some of our most intimate relationships. With the closest people to us, 
with our very hearts and our bodies and our sexuality, those things that form so much of our identity. And these, in these, maybe more than in any other area, we should be living toward the center rather than being satisfied with just the outside edge. So let's talk about adultery. Jesus introduces this topic the same way he's introducing all the other topics in this part. He says, you have heard that it was said, which is a way of referencing the law says, or the outside edge is, that you shall not commit adultery. And that's true. You can find this law in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. It is the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Adultery is defined as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. So just in case we thought that cheating was a modern day invention, it was evidently so common in the ancient world that it is specifically listed among the ten laws that God gave to set his people apart from everybody else. Imagine that. He's got ten things to pick. And this is one of them. God's people, among my people, we will not have adultery. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is he doing there? He's making things harder for us. Well, he's raising the bar. He's pointing towards that center. Just like a couple of verses ago, he broadened this focus from the act of murder to the nature of what's going on in our hearts. Hatred and vengeance and the like. Here he broadens the focus from the physical act of adultery to what precedes it. Lust in our eyes, our imaginations, in our hearts. It's not enough that you didn't act on it. It matters whether you thought about it, dreamed about it, fantasized about it. In my work with university students, um, people would often come and talk to me about the struggles that they had keeping sort of sexually pure. And I would be very sympathetic because I want you to really know, like, I'm a single woman in my late 30s, and I've never been married. So I'm a virgin, but I am not, like, dead, right, inside? Okay. So, like, I know what it's like to be attracted to someone. I know what it's like to have desire to have a sex drive and to not be able to act on that. I get that. It's hard. So I was sympathetic. And students would often say things to me like this. I don't know what happened. We just started making out. We just ended up in bed together. And that right there is where my sympathy ends. Because no one just ends up anywhere. You don't trip over the carpet, fall into someone's arms, and land on their lips. That's not how it works. But that's what they would say it like. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You were there. I think it happened with your, well, parts. Okay. Um, What happens is we make choices. We make choices, choices to watch that person in a particular way that stirs up a lot of longing, choices to intentionally recall that image, 
to mull it over and expand on it, to fantasize about that person. Choices to put ourselves in situations where things might happen. John Stott is a a 20th century theologian, and he said it like this, No one has ever fallen victim to immorality who has not first opened the floodgates of passion through their eyes. And so when I would talk with students about someone they had a crush on or they were just spending a lot of time with, um, or even someone they were actively dating, and I want you to know that I did this for 12 years and those conversations were always awkward. Okay. I'd ask something like, so how's it going between you physically? Are you guys keeping some good boundaries? And they would say, oh, we really are. Yeah, it's going good. We're actually not really doing that much. And then I would have to ask an even more awkward follow-up question, which is, well, what about your thought life? Are you obsessing over him? Are you fantasizing about her? And that was often a much more challenging question to answer because we can do a lot of really fun fantasizing and still not technically have crossed any physical boundaries. Okay, I just want to like pause for a second and make a disclaimer, and it's this. If you are with us today and you are not a Christian, which is to say that you're not actively following Jesus, you haven't decided to make him the Lord of your life, I genuinely, truly want you to know that there is no judgment here, okay? I am not, and certainly Jesus was not, insisting that everyone live by this moral code. Not at all. Remember that he is up on the mountain with his own followers, with the people who are closest to him. He's talking to people who want to be citizens of the new kingdom. For them, and only them, it's not going to be enough to simply claim that you've never slept with someone who's not your spouse. For kingdom citizens, even their hearts, even their thoughts, even their imaginations needed to be in obedience and submission to Jesus. So if that is not you, um, then I am really sorry because what a weird talk to hear at church on a Sunday morning. Um, And I would invite you to please listen and enjoy the sermon and really not feel any pressure at all from us. If you are here with us this morning and you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus and you have decided to make him the Lord of your life, this is absolutely for you. And Jesus is doing two things here that we need to take really seriously. First of all, he is telling us that looking lustfully, all the ogling, the gazing, even the daydreaming, certainly all the pornography, because we know that that's our preferred method of looking today, is just as bad as committing the act of adultery. Does that seem crazy? Like maybe I'm just overreacting a little bit. But listen, looking lustfully at someone who is not your spouse degrades the person you're looking at. It reduces a human being, an image bearer of the living God, 
to an object to be used for your gratification. And it also presents us with unrealistic sexual stimulation. That is especially true about pornography, and it does absolutely cause damage in our intimate relationships. And that's what really matters. Two weeks ago, um, Bill was introducing this topic of living towards God's law, and he said this, it's not about the literal definition of the law. It's about letting your whole inner being be motivated by love for God and love for other people. That's the center here, okay? Adultery is the outside edge, but the center is good, deep, loving relationships with other people. Relationships that are based on respect and mutuality, on empathy and understanding, on appreciation and honor. The center is relationships with our spouses that sound like that poetry from Genesis. This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You can't maintain that if you're comparing your spouse's body to the images you're scrolling through online. The center is relationships with women and men who are not our spouses that recognize the image of God in the other and value them for who they are. And you can't have that if you're daydreaming about them, if you're making up whatever story in your mind is most attractive to you. Here's the truth. I might not be able to convince you this morning that using pornography or lusting after someone is bad for you. Maybe I will you. I certainly never could, students. And I I want you to know I can't make a watertight argument for it. I'm not even trying. Lots of people argue that pornography is good for their relationships. What I'm doing today is reminding you, you followers of Jesus, That Jesus has something to say about this. Jesus, who is our king, asks his citizens to take lust way more seriously than the culture around them would ever do. You don't need to listen to me or believe me. But if you're a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, you need to listen to him. The second thing is he's asking us to take radical steps to cut lust out of our lives. Let's look at that part for a minute. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I love this text. Um, I always, this is a little gross, I always sort of imagine um some very earnest young person sitting down with Jesus and confessing the struggle that they're having with lust and Jesus just like pulling out like a melon baller and being like, I got you, bro. Right? I warned you. It's a little gross. Like, ooh. Um, it's terrible. So gross. But that's what he's saying. It's so jarring. Gouge it out and throw it away. That would literally be better for you than what you're doing right now. Cut it off. 
apparently and tragically, there were people who used to take this this teaching quite literally, and they were physically maiming themselves when they did something wrong. And thank goodness, uh, the church fathers wisely decided to abolish that practice. I mean, it wouldn't work anyway, would it? Like, gouging out your eye doesn't remove the images you've already seen, and it doesn't change your heart. But just to be clear, I don't think that Jesus is actually asking us uh, to start cutting off our limbs. He's making a point, right? And he's making it well. Like, this is a memorable image. Take lust way more seriously. If something you're looking at is causing you to lust, stop looking at it. If something you're touching is causing lust, stop touching it. In another place where this story is recorded, the author adds a part about um, a foot. And so I think we can safely say, if somewhere you're going is causing you to lust, stop going there. Don't look. Don't touch. Don't go. It's annoyingly simple and then tremendously hard to put into practice. We want all the good that this new kingdom has to offer, but we keep derailing our own efforts by engaging in the same behaviors that have caused problems in the past. We have to stop doing that. I have friends in Ottawa, they're, they're married now, but when they were dating, they lived in different cities that were about an eight-hour drive apart. And that is a really tough situation for a young Christian couple. And these two were incredible, incredible at it. One of them would go to visit the other for four or five days at a time, and they would always find a neighbor or a friend who lived nearby where the visiting partner could stay. They had decided together that they would not stay under the same roof. It's not because they couldn't keep their hands off each other. They had a lot of self-control, actually, and it probably would have been okay. It's because they didn't want to be in a situation that would cause them to lust after one another. They didn't want to imagine the other one sleeping on the other side of the wall. They didn't want to hear each other in the shower in the morning. They were so committed to honoring and valuing one another, that they took this passage utterly seriously. If something was leading them to sin, they just they cut it off. As simple as that. Sitting up all night talking in the dark was likely to lead to lust and possibly some other things, so they didn't do it. They'd be home in their respective houses by midnight and they'd pick up their conversation in the morning at breakfast. And I know it sounds extreme, but I think it matters, examples like that. So, so often we genuinely want the good that Jesus is offering, but we keep engaging in behaviors that lead us toward lust. Do we want the good life in the kingdom? Do we want it enough to eliminate things from our life? that might be damaging us? Would you stop going to that club or that bar? Or frankly, it could be that coffee shop where you know your conversation with a particular staff person isn't totally innocent. 
Would you turn off your internet signal at 10 p.m.? Because you know you're not watching good stuff after that. Would you stop reading erotic fiction or even romance novels that are really just fueling your fantasy life? I want to reiterate that I am not trying to force a set of values on people who aren't following Jesus. I'm not even prescribing a fixed morality or insisting on a set of rules for everyone who is following Jesus because people are very different We have different sensibilities, different personalities, different tolerances. Some people can be in art galleries or watch films with nudity and not be bothered. Some people shouldn't probably see that stuff. You have to know yourself. And furthermore, it's not about finding a set of rules and being perfect. That's exactly what Jesus was speaking against. This idea that a set of rules, a fixed set of rules could keep you in good standing with God. We're not perfect. An honest reflection on this topic can and probably will lead us toward being poor in spirit, right? More and more deeply aware of our need for God. It's not about rules. It is about wisdom and maturity. About acknowledging what we cannot control and limiting our exposure to temptation whenever we can. It's also not about a list of don'ts. Don'ts are almost always an outside edge. Rather, it's about being so deeply motivated by love for God. Motivated for love of his image in other people. His intention for marriage. And so deeply motivated by love for others. That is to say, so deeply compelled by the center, that we absolutely refuse to exploit people's bodies for our own gratification, whether in a physical act or in our thoughts. So, what will we do? I wish I had a more creative application for this. I I don't. It's a serious topic. It's a boring application. Um, If we're going to grow into mature followers of Jesus... We better engage this. So here it is. The first thing is acknowledge to yourself the sights, the places, the things that lead you to lust. Maybe you need to tell someone else what those are. You really might need to. But for sure, get clear about it in your own mind. Now, that's not to say suppress your sexuality or pretend you don't have desires or drives. We all do. But get clear about the places where you're looking at people like objects rather than people. That's what lust is. And then immediately adjust your behavior to eliminate that situation. And do it even if it's embarrassing. I think, oddly enough, that's going to be one of the hardest things. You're going to feel embarrassed when you decide not to see that movie or you refuse to ogle the group of women on the street or you decline the invitation to the bachelorette party. It's okay to be embarrassed. That's just a feeling. Do the action anyway. Take the situation then to prayer. And specifically ask God to change your heart 
toward the people you're lusting after. Ask him to help you see them as full human beings. Ask him for compassion and respect for them. Ask him to reorder your heart so that you love them as full people. I want you to know that I am really glad to be on this journey with you, learning about the kingdom that Jesus is establishing and how you and I can live as citizens there. And the stuff we're addressing today, this isn't easy to talk about, and the way forward isn't easy, even if it sounds simple. But let's embrace that. Let's trust Jesus to be merciful no matter what happens, and then live towards God's law, live towards the center together. Let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, we acknowledge that this is a tough, this is a tough word. It's a hard message. And we're sorry for the places where lust has taken root in our lives and our hearts. Where we've been unfaithful to other people and to you. Jesus, we pray that by your spirit you would help us become aware of the things that trigger us. We pray that you would give us the courage to stop. To just cut behaviors out of our lives entirely. And we pray that you would change our hearts. We pray that you would reorder love in us so that we might value all who were made in your image to your glory and for our salvation. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.